the positive impact on the quality of life of recipients of organ donation is clearly apparent. Sadly for many on waiting lists worldwide, the rates of organ donation continue to fail to meet demand. While organ donation after brain death is now a standard of care in many regions, donation after circulatory arrest is less well accepted. Dr Dale Gardner undertook intensive care and anaesthetic training in Australia before taking up a consultant position at Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham, England. Following completion of his Masters of Bioethics, he now sits on the Donation Ethics Committee in the UK and is the clinical lead for organ donation in his region. I began by asking him why donation after cardiac death was necessary at all. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's been a long journey for many people on when we think about um, donation after circulatory death or donation after cardiac death. Change names a little bit. Um, some, if you take the transplant side of things, then there's a clear need for um, for more organs for our transplant recipients, and there's been a growing gap, between, especially in the UK where I'm based, between the transplant waiting list and the number of organ donors. And the UK has seen a steady decline in the number of brain-dead donors. And some of that's for excellent reasons. Um, subarachnoid hemorrhage coilings are sort of routine now. Decompressive craniectomy is very common in the UK. And these are, are good reasons and patients are benefiting. But it has the consequence that brain death is becoming less likely. And so it was really one of the reasons people went back to DCD was to re-explore that sort of opportunity and um, because that was the foundation of, of, of donation, all the original donors were DCD. In fact, when Christian Barnard carried out the very first heart trans donation in um, Cape Town, that actually was a DCD case. He was told that um, that you know, brain death, yeah, we, we it's probably legal in, in South Africa. You could probably go ahead and carry out this um, donation and transplantation. But you know, he was quite concerned naturally by probably being all right and being a potential murder charge. He actually allowed the heart to stop. So the very first heart transplant was actually a DCD heart. But I'd say as an intensivist, um, my my focus is on actually not the recipient so much, but actually on the donor families. And many intensive cares have begun their DCD program because families have gone to them wanting donation to go ahead when someone is clearly dying and being told, no, it can't because they're not brain dead. And so, so in the UK especially, all the, um, all the original um, intensive cares that began DCD programs were all based and driven often by families and actually not by transplant surgeons, not even by intensive care. And that's really where I see it sitting far more now is this something we can offer families. I'd like to just start with the, the process of DCD. For those who are unfamiliar with it, can you outline how DCD occurs? Well, obviously the, the patients um, don't meet criteria for brain death, and that's, uh, so, but usually they have a, a severe neurological injury. And as I said before, because of decompressive craniectomies, this sort of category of patients is actually becoming more common. And the key thing and the key ethical challenge is to make sure you separate your thinking of, um, of your withdrawal decision from your actual going ahead with donation because you must make sure that the reasons you're withdrawing are, are very clear. And in the patient's um, you, you're usually very obvious the fact that you have already made the decision to withdraw 
and then you think about the donation process. So you've got, classically got a patient with a severe neurological injury uh, and, then, and you are very clear and you feel it's what the family would want, what the patient would want, that it's right for you to stop the life-sustaining treatment you're providing on intensive care and you're planning to withdraw. And only then do you start to think about the opportunities of end-of-life care and donation is just part of good end-of-life care. And what the process is, you you then talk to the family, you consult the organ donor register, and if donation is part of what the family wants, then you start to um, begin the process. And the process can be quite time-consuming. It usually takes between about 6 to 12 hours to organise the recipients, to match the blood, to mobilise the, the surgical teams. And then in that time, the patient has to be supported on the intensive care. And then at the time you would carry out a withdrawal, the same withdrawal you would have done 12 hours previously, but you now have delayed it till that moment. Carry out your withdrawal, and then if the patient dies um, in a time that allows donation to go ahead, then you confirm your death and the patient has to be moved to theatre quite rapidly. You really want to be having um, cold perfusion of the organs exposed with cold saline or something um, within about sort of ideally 15 to 20 minutes maximum from when the heart has um, ceased to beat. Those sort of time frames can be sort of quite confronting and if you don't sort of explain them to, to the staff members, they can be sort of quite sort of confused by them. We found actually in the practice in the UK that actually the families are usually very sort of understanding of this because it's been well explained to them about what to expect and then they know if they want donation and usually it's they're, they're the ones who are driving it because they're the ones who want it um, that they have to leave quite quickly after the heart has stopped. The moment of legal death is of course very different in beating heart donors compared with DCD. How is death defined in, in the latter case? Um, Essentially, the irony is we've been carrying out diagnosing cardiorespiratory death for, for, for 150 years. It's actually since a chap called Eugene Beauchat won the Academy of Sciences Prize in Paris in about 1846. And he advocated the prevention of premature burial by use of the stethoscope. So that's when it actually came. But the UK only published guidelines on how we should actually do it as doctors in 2008. So nearly 150 years of um, waiting before we actually had clear guidelines. Until then, it was always, you know, you were taught by your senior doctor, like your doctor one or two years ahead of you when you first went onto the wards, and then, and then you had to sort of do whatever they said, and that's what you did for the next sort of decades of practice. And um, that was very, very variable. But the moment of death in the UK is, um, is defined as basically you have to have the pre... You know, there's a three sort of stages, really, the preconditions and the actual examination. And one of the, one of the things is you may, you've got to make sure that actually there's no reason you should be doing CPR and you're happy that the fact that you're actually stopping CPR or they've got to do not resuscitate order, you're not going to begin CPR. The next step for, for diagnosing death using circulatory criteria is then you have an observation and examination and there's a period of time you must observe for, and that period of time is five minutes and it's chosen for five minutes because after that time, the chance or there's no expectation there'll be any chance of spontaneous auto-resuscitation of the circulation recommencing spontaneously. And that five minutes actually was originally pr proposed back in the 1846 by the chap Eugene Bouchard. He originally actually said two minutes but in the face of opposition. He extended it to five minutes. And as you know, in, in um, protocols in Australia and in the US, two minutes can't be accepted. And there's, there's no reason to believe that that's actually unsafe. 
And the final thing is, once you actually um, have waited that time, is you shouldn't do anything that might restore the circulation um, to the brain, brain in any way, because that would invalidate your criteria. So it's it's not any um, it's what we've been doing for for um, for decades and decades. It's it's not any really any different. The only difference is if your donations happening is that the typical thing we were all taught is when you know, go have a cup of tea before you diagnose a death on the ward has really changed, and you you've got to watch, and you've got to be helping it um, helping sort of observe and then helping to move the patient to theatre if donation is going to be possible. Tell me about, a little more about that last point about perfusion of the brain and it invalidating the process. Yep. So the problem can be is that we all know that the brain won't be completely destroyed after five minutes of absence of arm circulation. That's just a given. And um, if you do activities to the body, like has happened in the States when they put patients on extracorporeal membrane oxygenation after a diagnosis of death, would anyone be surprised if after two minutes you put someone on ECMO whose heart has stopped that the heart restarts? I don't think so. And if you do stupid things like that, then you're going to get, you're going to cause an invalidation of the whole premise of, of, of the diagnosis of death, which is that actually you're not going to do any cardiopulmonary resuscitation and you're going to have no chance of the heart restarting spontaneously if you call that, if you, if after five minutes and, um, unless you do something silly. Now, that sometimes people sort of struggle with the concept of that being irreversible or not irreversible. But let's face it, that many deaths on intensive care are actually diagnosed even quicker than five minutes, and people don't even wait that five minutes. And in the UK in 2012, just last year, we had a national patient safety alert of the fact that people were, were diagnosing death. This had nothing to do with donation. We're diagnosing death, and then families were being brought in, and the patient was still breathing or started to breathe again. And what they said, the National Patient Safety Agency, is saying it's not that five minutes is too short, but people weren't even waiting five minutes uh, before they were declaring death. And you should at least, you must monitor for five minutes. And all, all those cases were, were, every one of them was in a failed um, cardiac resuscitation sort of scenario, not actually a withdrawal or treatment as you'd seen in intensive care. And there's been systematic reviews on, the, on this topic of all the cases of, of um, auto-resuscitation or Lazarus syndrome, as it's known, and there's, been, there's no evidence of any sort of um, after-withdrawal for any sort of um, return spontaneously after, after, after two minutes even, or, and especially after five minutes, which is what the UK standard is. I would imagine with the sensitivities involved in organ, organ donation that this is a fairly heavily protocolised process. Yes, it, it, it can be, and it is. But it's um, one of the one of my concerns. I actually began a long journey in my understanding of this topic and my support for this topic. And I published. Um, I did a master's of bioethics on, from Monash on this topic. And I was very anti, um, as it was called then, non-heart beating donation, which we now know as DCD. And mainly because I felt that it wasn't very protocolised and it was very sort of. Um, 
dodgy ethical standards were being applied um, by small hospitals doing as they would and not really any robust um, guidance. But in the UK, we've had, we've had enormous amounts of guidance published um, over the last five years, which have really sort of answered many of the legal ethical challenges on this topic. And, um, and it has become far more protocolised than understood and far safer because of that. Because when I, was, when I wrote an editorial in, in, you know, criticising this back in 2007, published in Anesthesia, we didn't even have an accepted diagnosis of death after the heart had stopped till 2008. Um, so you know, how, how we were doing it was quite variable what was happening. And then actually a lot more has been published since from um, groups in the, in the UK like the National Institute of Clinical Excellence really supporting the fact of early referral and, and early um, and promoting, you know, exploring wishes to donate with families. We've had a legal guidance from the Department of Health saying that they believe it's legal to delay withdrawal and it's legal to change a patient's location from the emergency department to intensive care. It's legal to maintain physiological stability to allow donation to go ahead. And these very much rest on the concept that best interests for the patient extend far beyond just medical best interests and physical factors, but actually into things like wishes, values and beliefs, and they become even more important to the end of life. So there's actually been an enormous amount of work, and I sit on the, the National Donation Ethics Committee in the UK, and again, they're given guidance to prevent conflicts of interest, particularly in the dealing with, um, they, they recommend, and I think it's good practice for all intensive care, that two consultants make any withdrawal decision so it doesn't just rest on one person, and they would like that to be the standard for any withdrawal on intensive care, but they can only speak for donation. So a vast amount of changes have, have occurred in recent years to sort of promote this. We've even had the General Medical Council in their 2010 guidance um, on um, end-of-life care saying that actually it's a duty of a doctor to explore donation potential when it, when it might be possible. It's a very powerful statement from the General Medical Council supportive of donation and that doctors should follow any national procedures. You mentioned that this is an area that is littered with ethical issues. What are some of the issues that you've encountered over your time in DCD? Um, there have been large numbers. I mean, we, the UK has really sort of tackled this. And it's important, I guess, before we sort of talk about which one, just to clarify that the UK DCD is, is, uses predominantly what's called Maastricht 3 criteria, which is basically controlled donation after circulatory death, so basically emergency department, intensive care patients, where there's a chosen um, plan to withdraw life-sustaining treatment, as opposed to what's practiced in Spain and France, predominantly of uncontrolled DCD, which is basically failed resuscitation in the emergency department. And um, so the ethical issues are very much are linked to the, the type of donation that we're carrying out. So we found I mean, originally, as I said, that the lack of a diagnosis of, um, of death was a huge stumbling block when, when we didn't really have an established and accepted standard. We, um, we didn't really know what was legal. There was concerns that actually even things like delaying withdrawal, because I said it can take a 12-hour process, then is that legal to put the patient through that when you've already made a decision that the treatment you're giving is futile and you've already made a decision that the plan is to stop? And um, 
you know, that is, has been giving guidance to say, yes, that is legal, much of the same way as we often um, will delay withdrawal if we're waiting for family members to attend. Um, the same sort of principles apply about doing what's holistically best for the patient, not just a simple medical and physical answer. We didn't really, you know, the other ethical issue is, we, is that conflict of interest concern that, um, that you, you change from being someone who's, um, who's just physically trying to make the patient better to someone who's actually now thinking of them in terms of donation and they're potentially trying to make them improve their physiology for the, for the benefit of the recipients and whether that creates conflicts of interest. That's, um, you know, the professional guidance has been very helpful from that from the Intensive Care Society and the Emergency Department um, groups as well to really promote the concept that actually what we're doing is, is this is end-of-life care and a standard of good end-of-life care is an allowance to, to um, donation to proceed if that's possible. There's been a huge, you know, huge amount published in the UK. I think just looking at a, few, a slide at the moment that's up on my screen, which no one can see, but I, you know, I can count. There's seven major publications since 2008 outlining um, how we should approach um, organ donation, and I don't know anything else in intensive care that has had so much robust publication in in, in such a short period of time. Dale, what is the experience of this process like for uh, for families uh, compared with standard um, brain death based donation? The families, I've, my experience is the families really fall in, 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 into two ways with it. Many families actually like to see the patient dead as they would understand that to be, as in cold and not breathing, or at least um, not breathing and looking with their, with their circulation stopped. And actually that moment of death, many families actually um, um, feel, feel more that's more understandable to what they understand. Some families actually of brain dead donors have requested that they're not prepared to, um, to, for brain death donation to occur. They actually want to see um, the heart stop. And, then, and if that ha is what they ask for, that's actually what happens. But it's a, quite a small number. So for families, actually, I think they understand the death in some ways better because you don't have to explain concepts like of, of brain death and what that actually means and why the, why the fact that they're warm with their circulation going and the chest going up and down from a ventilator and having that explanation. What we have noticed in the UK, though, is that the consent rate isn't quite as isn't as high for um, donation after circulatory death after, as it is for brain death. Um, it's sort of in the UK, consent for donation after brain death is 65% for, um, for DCD. It's around 51%. And one of the reasons I think is that there is a long delay in, in making organ donation go ahead, and it. 10 to 12 hours and someone who's brain dead, well, they've already died. And the families often, in my experience, are very likely to say goodbye and go and not stay the duration. Whereas many times in donation after circulatory death, the patient hasn't died while you're waiting because you haven't withdrawn treatment yet, and the families will stay. And for some families faced after maybe three or four days of agony, of ups and downs and the roller coaster of knowing whether their loved one will live or die and then being told they're going to die. And they, saw, they may well support donation, but when they're told it's a 12-hour process, some families are more likely, I think, to say, no, it's too much. They, can't, they, they, can't, they don't want to, to wait and they can't put themselves through that or don't want to put their loved one through what they might see as more as, as prolonging the dying process. That transition where the patient finally uh, does suffer cardiac death, um, 
yep. must be a very tricky one to negotiate with the family. Usually, in my experience, the families, often they're the ones who are very much on board. And what will happen is there's a specialist nurse for organ donation, and they will give updates to the family during that time and the family can spend time with the patient or they can be in, in sort of the relative's room and they can pop back in and out. And families are always told if, if they've had enough that they can just call it off at any moment. And so there's always that they know that that's within their power to um, to, to, to call it off if, if, it's, if it's all proving too much. But donation actually gives many families enormous pride in their loved one and enormous comfort and it actually has, has often a very strong benefit to them and I'm not sure whether families are thinking about that at the time and they're often not but in the days that come they often often do and I think that sort of helps helps the process along but the families in the UK are always allowed if, if they feel like they've had too much or there's too much suffering to to um, to to, uh, to say enough, and then then we we withdraw as 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 we would have hours before. In many ways, though, my I don't find that happening very often. The families want donation to go ahead. The patient might be on the organ donor register, or it's important to the family. And as long as they're kept informed and supported by the other hot, um, intensive care staff, as well as the specialist nurses for organ donation, then it actually goes. They, they can be supported through it. I think um, people will be surprised, especially if they're listening in on from Australia, just how huge um, donation after circuitry death has has been in the UK over the over the last five years. And in fact, most intensive cares see more DCD than DBD now. Um, and if, although donation after circuitry death only goes ahead because the patient dies in a time that allows it within about 50% of the time. So 50% of the time you, you go through all of this and it doesn't go ahead and all the families are told that at the beginning so they understand that what we're really doing is trying to, if donation can happen for their loved one, we're going to do our best to see if it can happen, but no promises are ever made that it actually will happen. But in February 2010 in the UK, donation after circulatory death in a number of consented donors' families overtook donation after brain death. So most intensive cares in the UK are seeing more DCD than DVD, even though there's... Um, and the gap between sort of in actual donors is sort of running around 35, um, 30, um, it's about 35 to 40% of all the deceased donors in the UK are now DCD donors. So that's a huge turnaround in a very short number of time. You mentioned the time limit that's applied after uh, withdrawal of cardiorespiratory support. Yep. What's the rationale for that uh, time limit? In some ways, I struggle with the rationale because the rationale seems often to me it's surgical convenience, um, that you've mobilised a whole surgical team and, um, and they, wait, they, they wait in theatre at the time, and they're ready at the time of withdrawal. And the rationale is after, if they wait after two hours was originally, but that's been extended recently in the UK, they, should, they must wait four hours. Um, and if the patient doesn't die within that time period, then they stand down and they leave. And but sometimes I find that a little too short because if it's, if patient has become quite unstable and the blood pressure's gone, the ischemic, um, warm ischemia has settled, settled in, then it's clear they should 
did stand down after a shorter period of time. But sometimes patients are quite stable after extubation and other withdrawal of life-sustaining treatments and can continue on quite stable for quite a while before they start to, to start their organs start to, to die. Like, And then you do wonder why, why the surgeons can't stay longer. One of the big changes in the UK has been the fact that there's now someone like myself, a clinical lead for organ donation in every hospital. And um, 95% of us are intensive care consultants. And I've seen a real power shift in, in donation, transplantation um, conversations, whereas previously, a decade back, it was all about the recipients and all about the needs of the transplant surgeons. But I'm really pleased to say that intensive care, we, you know, we've taken this on as our area. These are our patients. These are our families. And I'm really proud that we're actually giving them a top-level service. And um, you know, if, if we're not happy with some of the transplantation side of things that the transplant surgeons aren't in our my mind or our, the mind of all the clinical leads being respectful for our donor families and our donors we're very quick to tell them and I think that's a really good thing you know, donation is an intensive care matter not a, not a transplant surgeon matter you mentioned earlier that the very first cardiac transplant that was successful was, in fact, a DCD donor. Yes, indeed. In fact, the first kidneys were all DCD. All, all the first organ donation came from DCD donors. What organs are suitable for donation in DCD? <laughs> the hugest impact has been in kidneys, and, there's, um, and, and DCD kidneys and DPD kidneys, long-term results are almost equivalent with DCD, slightly worse and slightly... And, yeah, acutely, sometimes you need an extra spin or two on dialysis, but otherwise, in the longer term, much better. But you can donate um, your liver, your pancreas, and that's and certainly a lot of patients in the UK have benefited from DCD. You can donate lungs from DCD, and there's a theoretical and, and gradual numbers suggesting that DCD lungs are actually better than DBD lungs, because in the process of coning to become brain dead, the neurogenic pulmonary edema and the neurocardiac injury that occurs is very, very damaging. Damaging, and yet in, in the withdrawal process of, of a brain-injured person but who is going down a DCD pathway they don't, who has never coned, they don't get such damage. So lungs are, are, are very sort of potential for it to actually be better from DCD than actual DVD. And there has been some experimental work in um, heart DCD because, as we said, Christian Barnard managed it all those years ago. But um, you know, the popular one was the Denver Protocol, where they did paediatric from a, um, newborn baby donors who had, um, had sort of severe brain injury at birth. Um, but that was extremely controversial with, with very low um, um, time of observation before declaring death down to sort of around 75 seconds and then FPEA and then declaring death. So there's a lot of controversy with those cases. And, and the UK is, you know, though people talk about a heart DCD program, we certainly uh, uh, haven't started one yet. What are the factors that are associated with a good outcome uh, for donation after cardiac death? Um, patient selection is always um, is really important. Although you can donate all the, um, really into your 80s, and there are quite a number of cases of people in their 80s donating, especially kidneys, um, your age and your, your BMI are, are big predictors. The key, one of the key factors, though, in DCD comparing to DVD is that warm ischemia that occurs. And um, the shorter that warm ischemia, then the better the donor quality. And um, that's why it's very important. You, you plan your... Um, 
your withdrawal so that you can get to theatre in, in a prompt but, but dignified fashion. And um, some centres, some intensive care is actually withdraw in um, in the um, recovery, theatre recovery, or in an, in an anaesthetic room um, to just to, if their intensive care is a long way away. Generally, though, most with most proved we wish to withdraw in the intensive care because that's where the best nursing care is all available, and it's a familiar environment. It's better set up for relatives. In the states, it's quite common to withdraw on the operating table. Uh, I think that's not necessarily a good thing, not necessarily a, a good dignified place. And, and they did run into one case of problems when the transplant surgeon was accused of um, interfering with the dying process, and that led to a big court case in, um, in sort of, I think it was California, where it occurred. One of the ethical conundrums that's often been levelled at the donation process is that of a conflict of interest between the treating team caring for the family and uh, the donation process itself, and this seems to be potentially exacerbated by DCD. Well, I think managing conflict of interest is is, um, is what we all have to do in every aspect of our intensive care life, whether it's because you want to go home at 5 o'clock or whether it's because you're doing a research project and you're very keen to get that person onto your research project and the way you behave. I would hope that we're with sort of more professional, that we actually can manage these conflicts. And really, there's always conflicts of interest. Our your job is to be professional and manage them in a transparent and an appropriate manner. I really would sort of reverse that and think about my family, my donor, fa my donor and their family, and they want donation to occur. And if you've made the decision um, and got colleagues to agree, the multidisciplinary team all agrees that withdrawal is appropriate, then why shouldn't you sort of carry out those wishes? Why shouldn't you provide excellent end-of-life care? I mean, we, this is donation is just good end-of-life care. Um, yeah, it has benefits to our society, and that's and that's totally to be applauded, and that's and then sort of you know is very important, and that's what motivates families to give. But in my mind, I'm just providing um, top-level end-of-life care, and donation is just one aspect of that. And so, supporting someone through that is no different to any other way. I want to support them to um, at their end of life. So those conflicts of interest, I certainly think, are often overstated um, more more than understated. In in the UK, with obviously complaints to the National Health Service Blood and Transplant, which is actually the organ procurement organisation in the UK, uh, both. Uh, the, nearly all of the ones we're getting regarding this issue of, of, of whether donation was explored or not are all basically letters going, my mother died, she was on the organ donor register, and no one asked about donation. Why didn't she? Not uh, questions about you know, inappropriate requesting and inappropriate exploration of wishes, or you're not making them someone donate to or family or putting pressure on them. You're basically just posing a question. If, if you know, once they accept that end of life care is coming, it's very important for the family. You don't rush in and talk about organisation before they've actually accepted end of life is what you're going to talk about. The same reason you don't start talking about referrals to coroners and mortuaries and what's going to happen while, while people are still coming to grips with the concept of end of life care and the fact that their loved one is going to die. And once you once they've accepted that and they want them to talk about end of life care, then donation is just one aspect of that. For, for those uh, listening who are in other countries where the process might not be so well um, 
uh, protocolised, how would you suggest they go about setting up a DCD program? What are the steps that they're going to need to undertake in their local hospitals? Um, the first thing I think you got to work out, if you're going to do a controlled DCD program, then you need to understand the whole concept of withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment. The Ethica study, which I think was published in 2003, compared very European withdrawal of life-sustaining practices within intensive cares and showed a huge variation between sort of the central, southern and northern um, European countries, countries like the UK uh, and Australia is very like this as well, and will make withdrawal of life-sustaining treatments, um, whereas southern um, countries in Europe are very um, reluctant to ever withdraw life-sustaining treatment. And I think that is where most of the people's uncertainties sit with when, when I speak to European colleagues about the UK's controlled donation after circulatory death program is they, they have concerns about the whole withdrawal process. And I think they're, they're quite valid and they very much reflect different cultures of intensive care and different cultures of the, of the actual population. Well, I think what's important is is establishing what you want to do once you know you are going to withdraw and um, and how you explore that. I think that there's so much published now, especially in the UK and Australia and um, and the USA, that of clear guidance. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot you can just pick up and and follow and follow through. And um, we have um, protocolised in um, in the Midlands of the UK. Um, you know, best practice guidelines which really take clinicians, nurses um, through the stages of you know, best practice and ethically appropriate sort of um, donation to try to sort of take the uncertainty out so people know where they are on each step of the way. You mentioned that variability and there certainly does seem to be variability in people's practices in end-of-life care outside the context of DCD. Absolutely, yeah. Has it been difficult to get that uniformity of practice? I think we still haven't got uniformity of practice and, and very much the, the DCD goes ahead. The, the clinician is still in charge totally of the withdrawal pro process. Um, so not all clinicians will extubate the patient, um, although it's often, um, it often is, is, is common in the UK for extubation to, to occur. There's uncertainty even in whether extubation will um, lead to a more rapid death or, or not. And two studies in organ donation looking at this topic, which looked at all factors predicting time to death after withdrawal for DCD purposes, extubation was not linked to, um, to, to uh, um, any sort of hastening of death at all. In fact, more likely the opposite. Indeed, the same can be said in ICU general practice with um, when we when we use morphine and other sedatives as very little evidence that appropriate doses of those actually lead to a, ha a hastened death. In fact, the evidence suggests they actually lead to a more prolonged death, but a more comfortable death, because if you're in distress and your oxygen consumption builds up and goes up, then, you, then that leads to a more rapid demise, whereas if you're comfortable with a low oxygen demand, you may lead to a longer um, death, but a more comfortable death. So I think some of our, our preconceptions about the appropriate ways of withdrawal and why something may be inappropriate, the extubation's inappropriate or, or, um, or morphine may be inappropriate, is actually often not actually founded on, on true science. Finally, Dale, what do you see as the future for DCD? What are the issues we need to overcome and where do you see it all going? 
DCD is poised in the UK, both not only in consented numbers, which overtook DBD in 2010, but actual real numbers, probably next year or the year after, there will be more DCD donors in the, in the UK than DBD. Now, that is fantastic from a point of view of of a growth of, of donation to, to, to patients and families who previously would have no chance to actually donate and that and something they want to do. But it does mean that certain organs like the heart and, and less so the lungs, unless, unless there's a big increase in lung DCD works, it's sort of only just um, starting. Um, they miss donors who are recipients who are trying to on the waiting list for a heart transplant sort of miss out if, if with no increase. So there's like there's challenges with DCD in the fact in in, in its um in its growth, and some people have been concerned that potentially DCD is sort of Rob Peter to pay Paul, and that actually some of those DCD patients may have become DBD patients if they were just um, um, supported longer on intensive care. So there are sort of the challenges of, 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 of balancing those, those needs. And certainly um, you, in the France and Spain with their uncontrolled DCD programs, there's you know, thought and talk about introducing um, these programs into the UK, and they have their own ethical concerns. But DCD is, is very much accepted intensive care practice in the UK now. has been very sort of controversial over the last, you know, particularly five years ago, but actually it's on a very sound ethical and legal footing now and to become actually the, the, the main donation most intensive care doctors and nurses are now exposed to in the UK. Dale Gardner, thank you very much for your time. Greg, no worries, Todd. Have a good day. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www.crit-iq.com and www.crit-nurse.com You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique, making critical care education easier.